a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. The next three weeks, um. Ah, let's see, beginning October the 11th, we will be doing a fundraising marathon here on KPFA, and I will be trying to persuade you to uh, contribute to subscribe to the station. Uh, (laughs) Last night, I was at a uh, gathering, and someone asked me, they said, well, what is it you do at KPFA exactly? Just, Just exactly what is it you do? And I thought about that, and I said, well, you know, um, after, what is it, 23, 24 years here at the station, uh, I said, I, I, I couldn't quite tell you. I used to think of myself as a publicist for the revolution. So basically, I guess I try to figure out when the moment comes when art and ideology come together, when they fuse and catch fire. Um, you know, the great Bertolt Brecht once told us that art is a hammer with which to shape society. I think that's a harsh image. Um, I like to think of it as food for the soul. We look for meaning. We're the only animal that does that. We've got to have some meaning, yes. Everything is so so um, heartbreaking and confusing. And that's what, uh, that's what theater does. It shapes the world for us. It turns it into... Uh, a thought poem. I was thinking, a thought poem is the kind of thing that Martin Scorsese gave us with his four-hour documentary of Bob Dylan and his times, all the people around him, uh, Joan Baez and uh, all the wonderful people from that era. Uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. It's called No Direction Home. It's on PBS, the four hours of Bob Dylan. Most of us have seen so many documentaries. Uh, some critics didn't really understand what Scorsese was trying to do, but uh, he's given us something very unique. It's it's curious that artists need to be interpreted. They need to be, um, I don't want to use the word critiqued. Everybody's so afraid of the word criticism. Uh, critical thinking makes people wince, but obviously Martin Scorsese is of an age to have studied and learned uh, what uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s were all about. And he's the perfect filmmaker to interpret Bob Dylan and his era, his times. Uh, you know, what happened, um, COINTELPRO. Uh, I find that show so fascinating. I want to watch it again with some teenagers and ask them what they think about it. Uh, I was thinking how art and ideology 
come together, uh, even even in a recent soap opera called Rome. It's a 12-hour series on HBO, and I am addicted. I keep watching the reruns, even. Uh, it's the best Caesar I've ever seen. <laughs> Never mind. Most people don't have HBO, and they look at me sadly and say they don't believe in it. But uh, it's, uh, yes, it's not a religious faith. It's actually, uh, this is pretty much a BBC production, but there's no place like Rome. And ideologically, it's a wonderful analogy for our own times. You see Caesar using his uh, religious, well, he uses theocracy, of course, uh, just the way our own president does. Uh, Caesar bribes the head auger, you know, the guy who uh, uh, consults the entrails. <laughs> the the um, uh, necessity, of course, is to have good omens so that Caesar can do what he likes, uh, proving that God is on his side. I particularly liked the episode in which we had what I would call the Monica Lewinsky theme, uh, someone who is jealous of Caesar's relationship with his mistress, hires a, uh, a local graffiti artist to put dirty pictures of Caesar and his mistress all over Rome so that Caesar's wife will uh, threaten divorce, that sort of thing. Human nature is a constant, even after 2,000 years Politics is always, uh, what's the word, um, the art of the possible, such a uh, nasty business. I was thinking about art and ideology this week, and I was reading David Remnick. David Remnick is the editor of The New Yorker, and more and more he writes for the paper. I'm not sure, I don't know how he has time if he's supposed to be the editor of what I think is the most delightful magazine in the United States. Uh, so many people I know um, argue with me about that. I said, of course I read The Nation and all the rest, but I like a little art with with my uh, uh, my media, my words, yes. It's so difficult to um, separate uh, art and ideology. I think I'd rather not. Anyway, David Remnick, has got himself down to New Orleans. He went down physically. And the article he's written in the most recent New Yorker is called High Water. And I focused on that for my Thursday morning spot at 8.20. So check out Thursday morning at 8.20. That's my last morning spot for three weeks because we're, of course, going to go into a fundraiser. But basically, High Water is all about how presidents and citizens react to disaster. Uh <laughs> <laughs> David Remnick, earlier in the uh, the uh, September 12th issue of The New Yorker, uh, in uh, Talk of the Town, he broke down the money issue, and uh, he did the best job I've seen. Um, I, I do find that most people have a uh, spin on this issue, and he goes right to the facts. As I keep saying to people, you know, Opinion is the death of knowledge. Let us seek truth from facts. There are a few facts. Uh, here's what he writes. Um, it's about the money. Yes, the fact is that Bush cut the money and uh, things fell apart. He writes, to a frightening degree, Bush's faults of leadership and character were brought into high relief by the crisis. 
suntanned and relaxed after a vacation so long it would have shamed a French playboy. Bush reacted with fogged delinquency, as if he had been so lulled by his summer sojourn that he was not quite ready to acknowledge reality, <laughs> let alone master it. His first view of the floods came pitifully, theatrically, from the window of a low-flying Air Force One. All the president could muster, according to his press secretary, was, uh, quote, It's devastating. It's got to be doubly devastating on the ground, unquote. The moment demanded clarity of mind and rigorous governance. He could not summon them. The performance skills Bush eventually mustered after September 11th in his speech at Ground Zero, uh, these eluded him. The whole conceit of his presidency, that he is an instinctive chief executive, backed by grown-ups like Dick Cheney and tactical wizards like Karl Rove, now seemed as waterlogged as Biloxi and New Orleans. The mismanagement of the Katrina floods echoed the White House uh, mismanagement. His cavalier posture, the wretched decisions, the self-delusions, yes, echoed post-war Iraq. Uh, just as serious as the president's priorities, yes. His indifference to questions of infrastructure and the environment are magnified, yes, by this disaster in an era of tax cuts for the wealthy. George Bush consistently slashed the Army Corps of Engineers' funding requests. This is before the uh, uh, hurricane, before uh, Katrina. There were requests to improve the levees, holding back the lake. Yes, this year, uh, Bush asked for uh, $3.9 million. Let's see. He wanted $23 million less. $23 million less than the Corps requested. To that end, let's see, he agreed to $5.7 million. Yes, uh, that's cutting it in half. He delayed seven contracts, including one to enlarge the New Orleans levees. Um, hmm. I don't get it. Former Republican Congressman Michael Parker dared to protest the lack of proper funding back in 2002, uh, and Bush forced him out as the head of the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, why, why would he have cut the money? Well, similarly, the Southeast Louisiana Urban Flood Control Project, which is supposed to improve drainage and the pumping systems in New Orleans, recently asked for... Um, 62.5 million. The White House then proposed 10.5 million. So that's one-sixth of the amount asked. Uh, a former Louisiana senator, John Bro, a pro-Bush Democrat, said, listen, all of us uh, said to him, build it or you're going to have all of Jefferson Parish underwater. They didn't, and now Jefferson Parish is underwater. Yes, the president's incuriosity, his insistence on being an underbriefed gut player, is not looking so charming right now. In an ABC interview, he said, 
I don't think anyone anticipated the breach of the levees. Now, that sentence we have heard over and over and over again. Uh, <laughs> never mind. This piece, this is the one in the 12th September, New Yorker, goes on to give all of the details to quote the uh, New Orleans Times-Picayune, which has gone on publishing online. I think they may have a print issue again out. Uh, uh, anyway. The, the paper said over and over again that the federal budget cuts were going to uh, cause a catastrophe, and of course they did. And uh, then David Remnick was upset enough to get himself down to New Orleans, and he has written a long, long article in the 3 October issue, which I recommend to you if you're a schoolteacher particularly, because it's so nicely done and students will enjoy the historical parallels. It begins with a take on President Lyndon Johnson. The article is called High Water by David Remnick. Letter from Louisiana. It seems that uh, LBJ was called at 2.36 p.m. Uh, Russell Long, son of Huey Long, called him and said... Uh, Hurricane Betsy has made landfall on the Gulf Coast, and we need your help. Yes, we need your help, is a quote from the diaries of LBJ Wright. Uh, they understood that the water levels uh, were up to nine feet, and that uh, this was the worst disaster since the cholera epidemic of 1849, or maybe the yellow fever epidemic of 1905. In any case, the governor made it plain to LBJ that if he wanted to be re-elected and if he wanted the local Democrats to be re-elected, he'd better haul himself down to Louisiana. Okay, now this is a long a timeline here, but in any case, two and a half hours later, LBJ stepped into the helicopter and, uh, yes, 5.03 p.m. and turn around. Uh, he was in the airport an hour later. He did get in a 30-minute nap. Anyway, here he is uh, behind a flashlight in a shelter in uh, the Ninth Ward. Johnson announcing, this is your president. I'm here to help you. Now, they describe the suffering. Uh, in the shelters, it's exactly what you would expect. Uh, people approached the president and asked him for food and water. He was deeply moved, and so on and so forth. As I say, uh, he immediately turned to the uh, mayor and said, all the resources of the federal government would be at his disposal, and, quote, all red tape will be cut. <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, this story <laughs> contrasts horribly with the situation today, although, of course, the, the conditions are the same. David Remnick wandered around, uh, let's see, there are pages and pages of descriptions, exactly the sort of thing that you would think, uh, not very pretty, folks, uh, Mainly, he talks about the reaction of the media down there. Uh, 
I wish I'd been down there. I wish I had the tapes, the radio tapes. Uh, anyway, there is a couple of sad passages about the number of suicides. Uh, once again, a repeat of what happened during Betsy. Uh, <laughs> uh, worst of all, now that the looters are gone and most of the residents, uh, the uh, article goes on to list, oh, at least a dozen uh, people patrolling the, the streets. Here's a random sampling, he says. <laughs> yes, the New Orleans police, the New Orleans SWAT teams, the New York City Police Department, Sacramento Fire Department, the Maryland police, the Greenland police, private Blackwater security contractors, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, 82nd Airborne National Guardsmen, San Diego Lifeguards, Surf Zone Relief Operations, and in yellow t-shirts, Scientology Disaster Response Teams. <laughs> it would seem, um, I'm breaking away from the article here for my own little commentary, it would seem that everyone and his brother had gone to Louisiana for a photo op. They want to be photographed in the streets. Saving people, yes. The media has limited itself to uh, comments on uh, whether or not the people should be called fugitives. Yes, as if they gave a damn. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> it says here, the Scientologist pitched a tent outside Harrah's Casino with a sign reading. Something can be done about it. They offered massage assists to the police. My God. Okay. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of wonderful human interest stories here about uh, the locals and the poverty and corruption in New Orleans. Uh, again, the suicides and the tragic uh, consequences of all this hell and high water. Aha, uh, uh -huh, once again, yes, the people fleeing town were under no circumstances to be called refugees, said the local media, right. These are Americans, not Bosnians, not Kosovars, not Bangladeshis, Americans. <laughs> they don't give a damn for the terminology. I was thinking, uh, yes, the media, I wish, I wish we were uh, equipped here, you know, to hook up to somebody down there. He speaks, uh, David Remnick speaks of one guy, uh, a host on a show called Garland Robinette. Now, he said this was a uh, very efficient way of scanning the misery that had hit the Gulf Coast. He's sitting on a porch most of the night listening to this radio signal, and he says... Uh, this sonorous broadcaster had a long history as a television anchor in the town. His show was a catch-all for rumors, debunking of rumors, interviews, speculation. He said it was a kind of regional disaster therapy. Uh, everyone was calling, you know, looking for relatives and uh, family, kids, you know. Um, and all state national catastrophes team is standing by, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, one fellow called to say that at the Louis Armstrong Airport, there were two people posing as FEMA officers getting $15. Yes, he said the people told the 
refugees, yes, that they had to pay $15 to get on a bus leaving New Orleans, yes. There were obviously uh, scams. Um, anyway, on this uh, uh, TV radio station, people traded information about food supplies and rental properties throughout the South, news bulletins, floodwaters. Um, they said the floodwaters were highly contagious, contaminated with E. coli, rotting flesh, spilled petroleum. <laughs> At one point, they said that Washington would be sending $52 billion. Uh, people were told to watch out for fake website charities, that kind of thing. Um, there was a consortium of rival stations. They formed the United Broadcasters of New Orleans. And this group reached 38 states and 13 countries. Uh, of course, the big focus was on Robinette's interview with the mayor. You remember that. Uh, that was when everybody was still trapped in the Superdome and in the convention center. And the White House seemed to be on extended summer vacation, uh, unlike Lyndon Johnson, President Bush. <laughs> was somnambulant about this time, right? Actually, the Bush staff felt compelled to prepare a DVD of network newscasts to impress upon the president the scale of the floods, the chaos and the suffering. Oh, my God. They had to put together, I mean, he obviously doesn't read, so they had to put together a film to show the president that things were bad. Uh. <laughs> anyway, David Remnick um, goes on to uh, explain the ways in which Bush was made conscious that uh, something uh, needed to be done. Um, anyway, <laughs> there's a, a piece here... Uh, Oh, yes, lists, lists of what people were given little bits of paper outside morgues. Um, they were told nothing. Yes, outside a morgue. This fella hands David Remnick a piece of paper. It's headed the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team Process. Mm -hmm. As deceased victims are located by local emergency workers and volunteers, they are taken to the collection site. A collection site is a place where FEMA, Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, staff, collects preliminary information to help identify the victim. Information collected may include the address or location of victim, any documentation associated with the victim, uh, personal effects uh, from the collection site, the uh, bodies are taken to the disaster portable mortuary unit with dignity and in a very respectful manner utilizing a police escort. Oh, my God. And looks, it looks like they spent all their time uh, working on the way things appeared rather than actually doing anything uh, then there's a couple pages here, more paragraphs on the actual facts, the way the water came and the way the water went. And, of course, the arrival of the next hurricane, Hurricane Rita. <laughs> and longitudes and latitudes. Uh, and, of course, then, the heart of the article is this question 
that so many people have as to whether or not this was a racist uh, problem. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, the other news people, David Remnick is uh, not convinced one way or the other. Obviously, most people uh, were willing to believe. Uh, he said there's a theory about why older people in the Ninth Ward still keep hatchets in their attics. Yes, they remember how they were trapped. They had to get to the roof. Uh, and, of course, back in 65, there was uh, a great deal of rumor about whether or not the levees had been breached on purpose. Um, <laughs> Biblical proportions, everyone is saying. Biblical proportions, epic, Homeric, that sort of thing. <laughs> Here is a man in his late 30s sitting down with uh, David Remnick. He wanted to talk. Hayes is African-American, a Navy veteran. He'd been working as a fitter at uh, Northrock Grumman. He said people had painful and fantastic stories to tell, floating a family to safety in an inflatable kiddie pool, <laughs> nights in the Superdome or on the street, helicopter escapes in the arms of a soldier. Walter Hayes wanted to tell his story. He was in Iberia with a group of 28 close family and friends, including three infants and several small children. The adults had vowed to bring everyone out together. He talked of the beautiful weather the day before the storm, and then the next day he said, the water started coming out of the ground, rolling down the streets, streaming through the floorboards. In three hours, the water was at chest level. Hayes filled an ice chest with papers, and the group started out, halting for two days and nights, along with 2,000 other souls on the sweltering Claiborne Avenue overpass near the Superdome. We had with us uh, twins, three months old, and we had a two-months-old child, no water, he said. People were pulling guns. What we saw on that overpass was beyond imagining. There were suicides, people jumping off the bridge, Older people who couldn't take it, dead bodies floating underneath. The whole overpass reeked of feces and urine. Fights broke out all the time. People tried to jump on whatever military vehicles went by, but of course, they wouldn't let anyone on. There were choppers over our heads. We could see the touch and goes of the helicopters. It went on all night long. No one got any sleep. It was so hot and humid. And the one thing I'll never forget is that the sky was so clear, so full of stars. It was so clear because there weren't any lights from the city. All night long, the kids were crying, the adults were crying, old people were crying. In the days that followed, they made their way to higher ground. A heroin addict they met had been looting, and he gave them water and food and pampers. He even let them bathe in his house. And then, 
Hayes said. He went on looting. I couldn't really argue if you're dealt lemons, you make lemonade, and the story goes on. Uh, we've heard so many, 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 many stories. Once again, this is David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, who took his journalism and his good sense and went down to Louisiana, and he wrote this piece called High Water for The New Yorker. He's put together all of his skills and given us an incredibly beautiful portrait of what happened down there and uh, whether or not it's the political aspect or just the human tragedy you're interested in. I recommend it to you. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can. KPFA's Fall Fun Drive begins Tuesday, October 11th. Now is a great time to contribute your energy to the progressive movement as a KPFA phone volunteer. You can help out now and sign up for a volunteer shift by calling 510-848-6767, extension 618. If members of your community group, labor union, or nonprofit organization sign up to volunteer, your organization will be thanked on the air every day they come in to answer phones. The fun drive will last from Tuesday, October 11th to Thursday, October 27th, and we definitely need your help, so call as soon as you can to let us know you're coming. To sign up as a phone volunteer for KPFA's Fall Fun Drive, please call 510-848-6767, extension 618. You are tuned to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30.